But first, we start with the drive for more affordable housing in Vancouver. We've got a city council election coming up next month. Now check out this campaign promise from the One City Vancouver Party. Check this out. Allow six-story apartment buildings everywhere in Vancouver, including in neighborhoods currently zoned for single-family detached homes. Imagine that. You live in one of those neighborhoods. There's a six-story apartment building going up next door. It would also allow four-story condominium buildings to be built everywhere in the city. Got Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle standing by. Have a listen to her running mate here. This is Iona Bonanimous, who is a candidate with the One City Candidates, a slate of candidates. Here she is speaking yesterday about these six-story apartment buildings. Have a listen. It is restricting renters and other people from being able to live on quieter, leafy streets. Instead, they're forced onto busy, arterial, polluting uh, streets. We have envisioned um, some six-story buildings that would replace some of the single-family homes and would allow many more households to live on a single piece of property. All right, let's discuss this now with uh, Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle running for re-election with One City Vancouver. Councillor, thanks for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. Okay, this idea is getting a lot of attention here in the last day or so, so let's talk about how this would work. So you're saying that these six-story apartments should be allowed to be built everywhere. No public hearing? Is that right? Um, There are lots of ways that the public... Uh, would get to engage, absolutely. You know, um, public hearings are uh, often the loudest part of our public engagement, um, but they are just the very end of the process throughout throughout policy decisions um, as well as rezonings. There are a number of ways for people to participate, and that's really important to me. And you'll see as the rest of One City's platform comes out that uh, that public engagement and democracy and particularly more equitable engagement that reduces barriers for people, all of that is uh, a strong value I hold and woven throughout our platform. Um, but yeah. for any of your listeners who have watched a public hearing, you know, the reality is that often they um, they devolve into a bit of an arms race between those opposed and those in support. Uh, And when we're doing that on each individual piece of property, uh, it's not good for communities. It's also not allowing us to move at the pace we need to move to truly tackle the housing crisis. So we're proposing taking a bigger approach, um, looking across the city, across neighborhoods, at the choices we make about where people can live. Right. And so the way this would work, you could have a six story high apartment that could be built on like a residential side street on a single family zoned lot. Yeah. Right? And there are, there are pockets wow. of neighborhoods, uh, there are pockets of neighborhoods around the city where this is already the case and um, where we have beautiful, welcoming, diverse and vibrant neighborhoods. You know, I, I was thinking this morning of um, where specifically to point out to you and, uh, and, there are neighborhoods all over in parts of Grandview Woodland and parts of Caresdale and Marple and Champlain Heights and Mount Pleasant and Fairview and, and even Kitts where we have a mix of housing types um, and, uh, and it's great. You know, I think the bigger question is um, where do we want 
people to live. We know that we have a housing crisis. We hear all the time from people affected from uh, from the challenges around hiring for teachers or servers or paramedics locally. Um, and I hear all the time from families who are being priced out of the city and pushed further and further away what? from their supports, you know, raising grandkids, raising kids further and further from grandkids. Right. So w- w- we need to build more housing. And the question before us as electeds and candidates is, um, what does that look like? Are we going to continue to build uh, just towers on arterials and restrict new residents to that type of housing? Or are we instead going to look at building housing throughout neighborhoods, more family-sized units and more complete and walkable communities, and that's what I choose. What would you say, though, I mean, I agree with you, look, we need more housing, that is for sure. What would you say, though, to someone who is living in a detached home in a neighborhood that is currently zoned, single-family zoned housing, and then next door, (laughs) <laughs> they're going to put up a six-story apartment right next door to you across the street from you. Like, what would you say to those people who might not might not be so enthusiastic about that idea? Yeah, look, they might not be so enthusiastic. On the other hand, um, they might be. I, I, I often hear from really? seniors, and there are folks in my own family who weren't able to downsize in their own neighborhood because there was nothing um, accessible and smaller in their neighborhood for them to downsized to. So they moved across town to a place where they could get a one-story apartment uh, rather than being in an older aging home that that wasn't going to suit them for the rest of their life. Um, You know, I I hear that throughout neighborhoods as well as hearing from folks who lament that their own kids can't live near them. So it's a shift in built form, absolutely. But I, I also think um, it's a way to maintain the character of our neighborhoods in terms of the people who live in them and make them what they are. We have neighborhoods across the city that have seen declines in populations over decades, and yeah. um, th- that's not working for us either. So th- things are changing either way, and what we're proposing is changes that I really believe benefit all of us. Right. Speaking of Vancouver City Councilor Christine Boyle running for re-election with one city, Vancouver, the proposal for six-story apartments to be allowed to be built everywhere in the city. What about parking, Councilor? On some of these side streets, there's already a crush for parking, especially on street. Man, you start putting up these six-story apartments everywhere. Where are people supposed to park? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, so we can add more parking, you know, lots of new housing, uh, multifamily housing developments have parking within or underneath. Um, but the other benefit is that uh, when you're building communities where people live closer to work, closer to the grocery store, um, they need to drive less. So, so maybe a family that would have had two cars only needs one, or maybe they... Um, they walk and cycle and they belong to a car share um, and and there are a plethora of other options. You know, parking is going to be a challenge as we look at how we add more housing. And again, right. the, the opportunity is to build communities where people need to rely less on cars to get to the places that they go. 
How would these homes be affordable? Would there be anything built into the plan to make sure people can actually afford these? Like, what's to stop someone from tearing down a, a single-family home and putting up a six-story apartment and, and just or you know and sell it and or condos that are like a million bucks each, or the rents will be sky high? How do you yeah. how do you deal with that? Again, a great question and something I think about a lot. Um, what we know is that right now, if a single-family home is torn down, um, it's most often replaced with a newer single-family home, producing the most expensive form of housing. Um, So what we're talking about instead is building more affordable options. Um, We're also proposing tools to build more non-market and co-op housing uh, and proposing that the Vancouver Affordable Housing Agency become a robust public developer um, with the first right of refusal uh, to purchase land or housing and work with the community housing sector to build more affordable housing. Um, but your land lift question is important too, and yeah. I don't want to avoid that um, because part of our housing platform is to ensure that if if increases in density, like you describe, um, right. and like we propose, result in land lift, that we capture those increases to pay for public amenities in the neighborhood. So as more neighbors are moving in, um, let's make upgrades to parks, add public plazas, all of these other benefits that um, are are needed in neighborhoods. Uh, that land lift can right. be put to good use. All right, Councillor, certainly an idea that's got people talking. Thank you for coming on today. Happy to anytime. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay. The news that we're also we're following right now: the search for Miles Sanderson underway in Saskatchewan. This is day four of the manhunt. Uh, police say he is can still considered dangerous. He could be injured. Why did the parole board of Canada let him out in the first place? Let's take a look at this lengthy and violent criminal record: assault, assault with a weapon, assault a police officer, robbery. 59 separate criminal convictions. He was assessed at a high risk to reoffend with violence. A high risk of spousal violence. Despite all that, the parole board let him out anyway. Ruling, quote, your release will contribute to the protection of society by facilitating your reintegration. As a law-abiding citizen. What? How is this possible? Federal Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino speaking yesterday in Vancouver, promising an investigation into the parole board ruling. Here's what Mendicino had to say yesterday. I've already been engaged with the parole board, and um, I'm told that there will be an investigation into this decision. I'm extremely concerned with what occurred here. Um, you know, a community is left reeling as a result of a, a massive number of um, tragedies and, and, and killings, and that's fundamentally wrong. And as I said in my introductory remarks, there will be um, an appropriate time and a place to review policy and resourcing, and we need to embrace that review. We need to be transparent with Canadians to make sure um, that this kind of thing never happens again. Discuss this now with my guest, Cash Heed, former chief of police in West Vancouver, former solicitor general of British Columbia. Cash, thank you for coming on again. Good morning, Mike. Okay, let's talk about first your thoughts on this parole board ruling. I mean, this is a man who he had been eligible for statutory release. He had served three, two-thirds of his sentence. So under the system in Canada, that's when you're allowed out. Doesn't mean your sentence is over. You're released with conditions. 
but the decision by he was released and he, he broke his conditions. And they let him out again anyway. Your thoughts? Well, let me tell you, this is another epic failure of the entire criminal justice system. And we have to point the fingers once again at the parole board because this guy has a history of explosive violence. He has a history of substance abuse that goes back to when he was 12 years old. He has emotional trauma. Those are just some of the explanations from the parole board. You know, two decades of this type of behavior, two decades of violence, and we still have a system where, in fact, these dangerous offenders can be let out in the public. So now we have an example. Ten people have died. We have communities that their public safety is at risk because this individual is fleeing police. He is, uh, you know, certainly he's attacked police in the uh, previously. He's a high risk to reoffend. How can we as a society let this so-called justice system react in this fashion? It's an epic failure. It, you know, there's nothing more we can, we can say, but let's fix it because the political rhetoric coming from that little clip you just played, Mike, is just making my blood boil because we've heard it so many times previously, but we do not fix the broken system. Especially when this is a guy who had gone through an assessment to measure the risk to reoffend, and he was found to be at risk to reoffend with violence. Despite that, though, the parole board decided that they could let him out anyway with conditions, right? He was not allowed to just... You're not allowed to just go free and do whatever you want. You have to meet with a parole officer. You have to meet with the caseworkers, which he failed to do. I mean, he then just disappeared. But what do you think about the ruling? Like, if you have a, a, a guy who's got a, a record of this nature, is it possible to let him out with any conditions at all, if you have conditions and keep the public safe? Well, obviously not, because of those 59 convictions that you mentioned, Mike, half of those are for breaching his court orders or some type of release previously. You knew it was just a matter of time that this was going to happen. He's been at large since May of this year when, in fact, police were looking at him. We even have to look at the efforts that were put into place to try and locate such a violent offender. First of all, Mike, you know I'm a reformer for the justice system. You know I'm one that says put the violent offenders in jail and throw away the keys. We need to have a system of that nature because you're not going to find uh, up to now a finer example of why the system failed these 10 people that were died at the hands of this individual. The other question that's hanging out there is how hard did the police try to find this guy after he was released? And then breached his release condition. So the police say that he was released last May. And then he failed to meet with his caseworkers. And then basically disappeared. So this guy, this violent, prolific offender, was on the loose for months. And how hard did the police try to find him, to to find him again? And Mendocino, by the way, addressed this issue yesterday as well. So here is the federal public safety minister. I'll play another clip of him here. Cash, get your thoughts. So this is Mendocino, Marco Mendocino yesterday, talking about how hard did the police try to find this guy when he was on the loose before these murders. Let's have a listen. I think it's in- incredibly important that, um, that when somebody's at large and there's a warrant for their arrest and um, you know they have an extensive uh, criminal background, that all the resources are there to be able to apprehend that person as quickly as possible. And we do need to take a very uh, careful look as to 
what occurred in the situation and when. And as I said, I think we need to, uh, to be very transparent about that review. It appears to be suggesting there that maybe police did not have enough resources to go out and find him. Mike, Your thoughts? The, the problem is, first of all, the Saskatoon police that were actually looking for it, they issued a Crime Stoppers bulletin with respect to this. We know, and, and you know, I did an experiment here in Vancouver, when we go after the 10 most wanted people that have outstanding warrants, we can deal with, we can reduce crime, we can reduce violence if, in fact, we do it. The problem is with our system here in Canada with the the broken down system that we have in policing, the RCMP are trying to do everything. They cannot have a, a fugitive team such as the U.S. Marshals that are out there hunting the individuals because you're right, Mike, there are no resources available. But first of all, before we determine what resources we need to do something, let's determine what we need to do. And this is a, an example, again, of political rhetoric coming from the politician with respect to what's going on. Mike, they will look into this, but will they make changes? Words are, are simpler than actions, and they need, we need actions to prevent these from occurring as we go forward. What are the main questions that you feel need to be answered in this review? You just heard the federal minister there promise an investigation. He says he's very concerned about what happened. He promises transparency for Canadians as they go through this process. What are the, what are the questions that Canadians deserve answers to right now, in your opinion? Well, right now, why, in fact, number one, the parole board released such a violent offender out in the community. Number two, was the monitoring to the extent that we needed it to ensure the safety of the community. Uh, community. Number three is when he failed to show up after his ridiculous release, what efforts were put in to do with it. Mike, we will come up with, uh, you know, answers. But like you know, and Mike, you've been covering this for so many years that you know these reports are easy, but the recommendations from these reports are seldom implemented within our system and and that's the problem we'll come up with recommendations will they be implemented we're still waiting for what happened with bc's north tragedy where they went out in a killing spree a few years ago we're still not hearing why and what changes we made in the system and here we are again dealing with a tragic incident here in canada cash thank you for your time and your thoughts today pleasure All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the manhunt now for Miles Sanderson now in day four. The man accused of multiple murders here after 10 people were killed in those brutal knife attacks in Saskatchewan on Sunday. Lots of questions being asked about this case now. You heard my conversation there with Cash Heed about the decision by the parole board uh, to release Miles Sanderson. A lot of questions being asked as well about how hard the police uh, looked for him when he was on the loose before these killings and he had breached his release conditions. I got Jim Van Allen standing by to discuss. First, let's have another listen to uh, Marco Mendicino, uh, the federal public safety minister who was in Vancouver yesterday speaking on this case, promising a review and an investigation into why Miles Sanderson was released in the first place. He also talked yesterday about the continuing search that's going on. Let's have a listen. I've been in touch with uh, the RCMP, and I'm assured that they're working around the clock to apprehend the suspect uh, who's involved. And I do want to thank them uh, for their tireless efforts. Um, It's been a long few days, and obviously the job is not yet done. 
Not done for sure. Police warning that he, Miles Sanderson, considered dangerous and may be injured, they said. Let's discuss now with my guest, Jim Van Allen. Jim is a threat and risk assessment consultant with Investigative Solutions Network in Ontario. He was formerly the manager of the criminal profiling unit of the Ontario Provincial Police. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jim, thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you bet, for sure. First of all, let's talk about the the search that's going on for Miles Sanderson right now, day four of the manhunt. How difficult a challenge is this for police? This is a, this is a huge challenge for police right now. All the leads they seem to have had seem to have gone stale. Uh, they're waiting for something new to lead them in a more uh, productive uh, direction. I'm sure they're doing a lot still in the uh, James Smith Cree Nation area. Uh, that's the last place he's really been known to be, it seems. And they're going to keep a presence there, uh, but they pretty much have to wait for a new lead to come up, a new sighting. Uh, Sanderson to commit a crime in order to get more resources to uh, allow him to avoid apprehension, whether it's going to be a break-in, theft of a firearm, home invasion, carjacking, hostage-taking. They're going to have to jump on this immediately and see if it leads them to him, set up a containment perimeter, and then uh, flood it and try and apprehend him. Jim, you're you're a professional criminal profiler. What is your read of this guy with what we know about him, the crimes that he's committed, the detailed criminal record that the public has learned about in the last couple of days? What's your sort of, what is your profile of him? Would you say he's like desperate right now? Like how would you describe his mindset? Well, he would be extremely desperate uh, right now, given what he's uh, fleeing from. Uh, This is one of the crimes of the decade right now. And, um, the stakes don't get any higher for something like this, and uh, he he's going to be uh, required to to you know hide out. Whether he's getting assistance, he's going to need shelter, transportation, maybe health care, food, uh, and uh, I think he's very committed to not going back into custody. Speaking of Jim Van Allen, Jim, in your experience as a a risk assessment professional. What is your opinion of the Parole Board of Canada and the risk, discuss, the risk assessment they, that they did of Miles Sanderson, concluding that he was at a high risk to reoffend with violence, and then yet they let him out anyway? What, what are your thoughts on that? We've got two minutes here. Yeah, that's a difficult uh, question. Uh, I haven't seen the actual uh, parole report. Um, somebody has to make a judgment call. Uh, they they erred on the side of uh, his ability to reintegrate into society. Uh, I guess he couldn't overcome his alcohol and drug problems. Uh, that's a significant uh, criminal record to to try and give somebody a second chance on that. 20 years of 59 convictions, and we see what he's capable of now. Uh, he, he is a, a, a significant risk to the public. Yeah, and obviously a mistake, I guess, to let him out. The minister responsible promising yesterday an investigation and a review into this parole board decision. What do you think are the main questions that need to be answered there? I've got a minute here. Well, um, 
they'll, they'll go over the rationale of the factors that were committed and the interpretations that were drawn from that and whether there were any uh, factors that were taken into consideration that were maybe improper uh, given the uh, Mr. Sanderson's uh, circumstances and, and risk to reoffend. Um, it's, a, it's a fine balance when you're looking at integrating uh, a violent offender back into public. Uh, that happens all the time. Every day in Canada, that happens. Uh, yeah. you, you, you hope it's not going to be the one that goes on and does something like this, though. And thank you for are, coming. Those are questions that have to be asked and answered down the road. Thank you for your analysis today. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome, Mike. Have a good day. Okay, thanks a lot. Jim Van Allen there. He's a threat and risk assessment consultant. All right, let's keep talking about our friends and neighbors next door in Alberta. We were talking a little earlier about that Alberta Sovereignty Act debate going on next door in Alberta. But have you heard the ads from the Alberta government? The Move to Alberta campaign, this is called Alberta is Calling, is the name of the ad campaign, uh, trying to convince people from British Columbia to move to Alberta. I got Shauna Feth standing by, the president of the Alberta Chamber of Commerce. First, let's have a listen to one of these ads. This is the one, the one that really jumped out at me, where the guy in the ad here talks about how much you can spend on a house to get a house in Alberta. Have a listen to this ad. Hey, Vancouver. I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd leave you and move to Edmonton, but I had this great job opportunity. So I came here in 2019. And so far, I've been pleasantly surprised. The people here are friendly and helpful. The food scene is amazing. There's plenty of stuff to do. And I bought my first house for just over 400000 which is kind of like a cherry on top. Alberta is calling. Learn more at albertaiscalling.ca. A message from the government of Alberta. Okay, that's just one of the ads as part of this ad campaign. The government of Alberta spending more than $2 million on these ads in British Columbia and also in Ontario. Let's discuss it with my guest now, Shauna Feth. Shauna is the president and CEO of the Alberta Chamber of Commerce, and I'm pleased to welcome her. Shauna, thank you for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure, Mike. Okay, Shauna, everyone who listens to this show has heard these ads. They've been playing frequently here on the station. What do you think of the ad campaign? Well, it's interesting, Mike. I actually met with the Minister of Labor and Immigration this morning, and I think uh, really it's an alignment of a bunch of things going on in Alberta in terms of trying to make uh, our, you know, as everywhere we're uh, experiencing some major skills shortages. So things like the Labor Mobility Act that's going to drop here in the new year, uh, which will expedite interprovincial accreditation along with, uh, you know, the, the ministers and the, the premiers, uh, intent to really make Alberta the easiest place to live and work in the world are all aligning to really promote Alberta as a destination uh, for all types of workers. And, um, you know, really pointing out in a very thoughtful way, you know, the, the benefits to coming to Alberta. Yeah, do you think they're working, the ads? I couldn't speak to that, Mike. Uh, I have no, no data that would support that one way or another. Okay. 
Okay, well, I, I talked to Jason Kenny about it last week, and he told me that he thinks the ads are working, that they're getting a big response to them. Let's have a listen to some of the things that he had to say to me, and I'll, I'll get your thoughts. So this is the Alberta Premier, Jason Kenny on the show last week, uh, talking about the cost of living in Alberta compared to B.C. Have a listen to this. We've calculated that, that a $125,000 a year worker in um, Vancouver could move to Calgary, and over 10 years, they are $400,000 better off. That is life-changing, especially if people can't afford to get a rent an apartment or buy a house in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I knew he was going to play that card right away when I had him on the show last week. He'd talk about housing prices. I mean, the housing, the real estate prices in Vancouver and the lower mainland are just astronomical compared to what you can get in Alberta. Can you talk a little bit about that, Shauna? Like, how much does a, how much can you, what can you get for $400,000 in Edmonton or Calgary? You can get a detached house for that much, right? Even less. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And even, you know, you're talking Edmonton and Calgary, but this campaign is for Alberta. So that goes down even more significantly when you look at rural jurisdictions. Yeah, and when you talk to people, you know, you, you talked about the labor shortage, the skill shortage you have in Alberta. I mean, we've got one here too. So do people, like, is that one of the things that you hear from people if they're thinking of moving out there? They talk about the housing costs? I think housing costs, I think um, we have the lowest unemployment rates in uh, in some of the lowest unemployment rates in Canada. We have, you know, the second fastest growing economy. So there's there's a lot of things. It's not just one factor. I think there's a lot of variables that play into why Alberta is a, a viable option to relocate and you know, whether it's your entry level, we know that we, we need everything from entry level to skilled workers. And so it's just a viable option for a place to further your career, to start your career, uh, you know, and, and just to really allow individuals, um, any Canadians, to benefit uh, in terms of the pursuit of better opportunities for themselves and their families. Yeah, what kind of workers are in the shortest supply there in Alberta? Like when you speak to members of the Alberta Chamber of Commerce there about this issue, what are they telling you? What kind of workers are they looking for? And this I can speak to with actual data. So we do a hiring intention <laughs> survey that was we just completed it in July, and 81% in the tourism sector are saying that they are, are really, really looking for, for workers at all levels. Yeah, so uh, that's like throughout the province, right? Yeah, correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's listen to another clip of Jason Kenny. One of the other things we got into, and you hear this reinforced in those those ads that they play. They say, well, move to Alberta. It's very friendly. The people are very welcoming. Uh, let's have a listen to Jason Kenny talking about uh, some of the, I guess, stereotypes about Alberta. Have a listen. This is the Alberta premier on last week's show. I do think that, that some people think, well, it's all just oil and gas and, you know, yeah. um, it, it, but when you move here, you realize actually it's a very diverse economy. It's a very diverse province as well, like like demographically. Uh, I just think there are some uh, dated stereotypes, if you will. Okay, do you agree with that, Shauna? Some ster- dated stereotypes about Alberta and Albertans? Uh, I, I would agree somewhat. I think uh, we're we're changing that a lot in terms of, you know, you take a look at how diversified the Alberta economy is. Uh, You know, we're we're looking at massive agriculture. We're looking at attracting major tech companies like Amazon into the province. 
um, you know, everything from healthcare to skilled trades to tech. Uh, you know, Alberta has it all, and we're diversifying and growing in so many different sectors. But I think we're starting to break that stereotype a bit as we speak more and more to our colleagues and counterparts across the country, but across the world as well. Speaking of Shauna Feth, president of the Alberta Chamber of Commerce, about the Move to Alberta ad campaign that you have likely heard on the station here the last few weeks. Shauna, what is your position on the Alberta Sovereignty Act? We played some clips earlier of the Premier saying this would be terrible for business and business confidence in Alberta if uh, a government in Alberta came in and brought in this this so-called Sovereignty Act. Do you agree with them? So I I won't really comment on that, Mike. Right now, that's currently an internal leadership race that's going on and internal politics at this point in time. And so really, that's not ACC's role to comment on that. But our role is to definitely work with the government of the day to find, uh, you know, to, to find and further the priorities of the Alberta business community. Okay, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Mike. On yesterday's show, I told you about the guy who tried to smuggle a miniature poodle into his condo unit in a bag, and he got caught. It was a no-pets-allowed building. He was fined $200 by his strata council for breaking the rules. Think about this now. If you have a dog or a cat, it can be difficult to find a place to live if an apartment or a condo building has a no pets allowed rule. Here's the question today. Should all apartment and condo buildings allow pets? Not just some of them. I'm talking all of them. Should that be the law of the land in British Columbia? If you have a pet, a dog or a cat, you should not be blocked from renting or purchasing a condo, renting an apartment, Got Rebecca Bretter standing by to talk about this. Have a listen. This is from yesterday's show. Tony Giovento, he's always a great guest on condo issues from the Condo Owners Association. Here he is talking about no pet rules. Strata corporations can prohibit pets, but they can't prohibit pets with respect to anyone under the Guide Dog and Service Animal Act or pets that are required for accommodation under the Human Rights Code. So, you know, it's not just as simple as cut and dry that we're going to have a bylaw that says no pets. Okay, that's an interesting point of law for sure. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Rebecca Bretter. Rebecca is an animal law lawyer, bretterlaw.com. Very pleased to welcome her back. Rebecca, thank you for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for calling. Okay, so no pets allowed. Like, how common is that in condo and apartment buildings in BC right now? So common. Unfortunately, yeah. it's way more common than I think it should be. Never mind what I think, what many uh, other people think. And unfortunately, in 2018, I think that was the last year that the government really took a good look at the Residential Tenancy Act, which is the, the legislation that governs, governs rentals, to see if changes should be made to the current legislation that allows total prohibition. So in in this province, uh, rental accommodations are allowed to have a complete ban on companion animals. And stratas, condominiums, are allowed to do the same thing, both under the Strata Property Act and under the Residential Tenancy Act if they're, if they're renting out. So unlike, you know, Ontario, which is more progressive than we are, they have legislation that actually 
bans these total prohibitions for rentals. In other words, you're not allowed having a total ban in rentals. Condos, from what I understand in Ontario, they're still allowed implementing no pet policies within their uh, condominium complexes, but at least rentals and and renters have a break if they have a companion animal. I mean, it's no secret, especially here in BC, and I would say in Ontario, there's a housing crisis. It's almost impossible to find affordable housing. And then on top of that, if you're someone who has a companion animal, it's almost impossible to find pet-friendly housing. And then what ends up happening? Some people feel like they have no choice but to either euthanize their animal or to put their animal up for adoption at the SPCA or, or another rescue organization. So I would say that there is actually a housing crisis for those living with companion animals as well. And yeah. their, their family, you know, I don't, I don't have to tell someone um, who, who has a dog or a cat that their dog or cat is family. I mean, that's how people feel or that's how many people feel. And I would say I'll go out on a limb and I'll say the majority of people feel that their dog or cat is their family. And so then sure. to be told that they have to have their animal kicked out or that they're just not welcome in a certain building is is oppressive, I think. What about, okay, I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, and I think it certainly is difficult for people who are trying to find an affordable place to rent and they have a dog or they have a cat, and man, the odds are just stacked against you big time in a situation yeah. like that. Now, what about for people who don't have a dog or they don't have a cat? Maybe they've got some allergies to animals. Maybe they've got some phobias. They're afraid of a dog or a cat or a, a dog for sure in some cases. What do you say to them who might say, well, look, I've decided to live in this particular building precisely because it is no pets allowed. I don't want pets in the building. What about them? I appreciate, I appreciate that. And, and I know I get yelled at by people who are like, I have severe allergies. I can't be anywhere close to a dog or a cat. And I, I get that. Like I say, I appreciate it. However, the reality is, is that companion animals are not going anywhere. And in fact, people are only getting more of them. And this is not just a phenomenon in BC. It's a worldwide phenomenon. People are having less kids. Human kids are having their companion animals instead, who they consider family. Really what it comes down to, especially when living in strata complexes, is whether a person is unreasonably interfering with another person's use and enjoyment of their property. That's kind of the the legal test there. And so when you have these strata bylaws that just have a blanket ban on pets, I would say in one day, (laughs) I'm sure I will get a case that I will take to the Supreme Court here in BC and maybe higher, um, that will agree that these types of bylaws are overly oppressive. And we wouldn't be the first jurisdiction to find that. So even if there would be a bylaw that just has a blanket ban like that, there are jurisdictions around the world that I think Australia is one of them, or, or actually it wasn't New Zealand and having a brain block in this particular second. But, um, but in that jurisdiction, they found that it was a high court, and this was recently in the last year, where that court found that blanket bans like this and condominium complexes are overly, overly oppressive. And the time has come. I mean, we have evolved as a society to respect each other and to realize that companion animals are here to stay in their family and they deserve to live with 
people if that is what they choose to do. Yeah, just do a quick Google search on that as you're speaking, Brady. It was Australia where that uh, that ruling yeah. came down. Yeah, yeah court, that sounds, court yeah. of appeal, high court ruling yeah. there. Okay, speaking to Rebecca Bretter, animal animal law lawyer. Rebecca, what about? I thought it was interesting what Tony Giaventu said there in that clip that we played. That you know, a, a condo strata a strata council has the right to bring in a no pets policy. An apartment building has that right. But he also talked about some of the exemptions to the law there, like uh, a, gui- yeah, a, gu- a guide dog, a certified assistance dog, the human right code. How does that work? Like if you have if you have a certified assistance dog or a guide dog, you can't be told you, you must be allowed to have that do- that dog with you, even if the building is no pets allowed. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. But right. there's a very big difference between a certified guide dog under the legislation that's specifically for quote unquote service or guide dog and emotional therapy or support animals. Very big difference. So ESAs, emotional support animals, are not technically covered under the law. However, Mm. like what Tommy said yesterday, and I agree with him, it's not always so black and white because if someone says that I really need this dog uh, for emotional, for my emotional stability and health and as an emotional support animal, then condominiums and, and landlords who are renting their places out have an obligation under the BC Human Rights Code to allow that individual to have that companion animal if it's medically necessary, even though that animal may not be uh, technically a guide dog or service dog under the legislation. But that's one of the frustrating things is that, and I get a lot of clients who call me and who, who really want to live with their dog or cat, or and they have for a number of years, and then all of a sudden the strata decides to enforce it because there's one bad mouth, loud mouth, and bad mouth <laughs> in the strata that's complaining about them, even though they've been living there for years. And, mm. and then one of the easier ways to go around that is if the animal really is needed for medical reasons, then you get medical, a doctor's note or a psychiatrist or a psychologist oh. or therapist note. But that's, you know, do you really, it, I just find it sad and disappointing that the best way right now under the law to fight these types of clauses is under the human rights code instead of it being more common sense the majority of people and i know that there will be people listening and they're like i'm a landlord i had this terrible experience with this tenant the cat peed all over the place you know it cost me thousands i'm a landlord too my husband and i own a townhouse that we rent out pet friendly (laughs) Mm. and we've always had very responsible tenants We've been lucky, and yes, I realize that there are some irresponsible people out there too, but the majority of people are responsible. And as a landlord, if you want to increase your deposit, you know, there's, there's legislation around that. You could do that. I mean, I'm still not in total favor of that because I think people should just be treated equally with or without a pet. But there are still options out there for landlords. Okay. And it's, yeah. All right, welcome back to the show. Rebecca Bretter is my guest. Lots of calls on pets and condos and apartments. Russ in Vancouver. Hi, Russ, what do you think? Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Um, uh, this lady here tries to make it sound like she's progressing in life. She's actually regressing in society. There was an open feeling towards animals many, many years ago. And then rules and regulations came into place over the years because of the stresses it causes for the many reasons that have already been discussed by yourself, Mike. You brought up some good points, and they're all accurate. 
So I can appreciate what this woman is saying, like she can appreciate what we're trying to say about the no pet policy. But I've had a dog, I've had a cat, and they were a pet. They were not my family. I was close to them. I cared for them very much. I took good care of them. But they are not family. And I think that's what society has gone into, is they're just way over the top with a lot of these things. Like, put things in their place. Put things in their category of what they really are. Okay, let's get Rebecca's response on. Okay, thanks for the call. Rebecca, go ahead. Yeah, of course, there'll be different uh, viewpoints on this, but I disagree with Russ. I would say that the majority of people are actually moving towards recognizing that animals are more than just quote-unquote property. They're more than just things. And I would go as far to say that many, many people, if not the majority, actually do feel that their pets, companion animals, are family. This is why we are seeing an increasing number of cases going to court over fighting over companion animals. You know, people don't fight over, I mean, I guess they do fight over furniture and fancy cars and all that too, but they are certainly fighting more and more over companion animals. And the law is actually starting to catch up. There are cases, including in my own, where judges have specifically used words like mother to characterize uh, someone's companion animal, or instead of saying this animal is property, recognizing that, yeah, technically property under the law, but the animals are also sentient beings and and much more than just quote-unquote property. So okay. the law is moving forward on this too. And I would say moving forward, certainly not regressing. Back to the phone lines, Anita in Abbotsford. Hi, Anita. Hi, Mike. I live in a condo that uh, has a, a, an animal policy. We are allowed dogs, and we spend over $1,000 a year hiring a company to come and pick up after these animals. There's a fine for, uh, uh, I think it's $250 for any owner that doesn't pick up after its dog but try and catch them. I firmly support a no animal policy. There are many condos that do allow animals, and, and that's fine. As, yeah. you know, animals are very important to a lot of people. They're not to me. I don't want a dog or a cat. I don't want to live with the allergies, the fleas, the silverfish, the other things that come along with pets, no matter how clean they are. Okay. Okay. And uh, thank you for the call, Rebecca. Well, I would say that silverfish and and other dirt and germs like that come just as much with children and with people, (laughs) not just with companion animals. So you'll always have people who are cleaner than others. And really, fundamentally, what it comes down to is whether someone is living respectfully, is whether someone is interfering with someone else's use and enjoyment. Just not wanting to see the face of an animal is wrong. Rebecca, we could do the whole show on this topic because we have more calls to get to. So we'll just have to have you back. Simple as that. Thank you for coming on. Sure. Thank you, Mike.